Your reading this morning comes from James 2, verses 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also by faith itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Hey, good morning, Grace Church. All right, full disclosure, I bit off way more than I can chew in this sermon. Uh, And so I spent a lot of the week dialing it back. And then secondly, this is one of the, probably the most theological sermon I've given in quite a while. And if you don't know what that means, that's okay. Just maybe ask afterwards or if something was unclear, don't, don't just let it lay that way. Find, find out. Find somebody to ask. There's lots of people in this room who would love to help you navigate this. I don't mean to intimidate you. I just mean to sort of prepare you a little bit. There's a pretty broad scope that we're going to cover here. So welcome back to James, um, but not, not quite. Uh, last week I preached through this passage the way if you've been at Grace, you're accustomed to the preaching going where we just sort of work through the text. This is part two of that and and coming at it from a different angle. But if you weren't here last week, this sermon doesn't work nearly as well if you didn't get that. So if you haven't yet, listen to it or watch it or or read it, and then at least some of today will make more sense to you. If you were here last week or if you have read it or watched it in the interim, keep that in your mind because this sermon is built on the foundation, the textual foundation I laid Last week. So I'm going to give you a quick recap for those whose memory is like mine, which is to say short. Uh, The the main thing for you to know about the text that Heather just read, that I preached on last week, James 2 14 to 26, is that in it, James was seeking to answer one main question. Hopefully, you already know what that was, but here it is. What is the relationship between living a holy life? the actual holiness in our life, the the good things that we do, the good works that come out of us? What's the relationship between living a holy life and salvation through faith in Jesus? How do those two things go together? Faith and our deeds and our all under the banner of our salvation. So by way of four examples, in this passage that we just heard, James gives four examples, two real, two imaginary, And in that, he answered that one question, 
in a handful of ways. I'm just going to give you a quick shotgun. Here, here are some of the ways he answered that. He said that in order to be saved, you want to go to heaven when you die, you want to be reconciled to God from your sin, you have to have faith. However, he also said that a claim to have faith in Jesus is not the same as actually having faith in Jesus. Lots of people claim that. Not everyone has that. In fact, a claim, James said, to have faith apart from corresponding good works, he gives it four titles. He, he says it's dead faith. That kind of faith is dead faith. Not, not alive saving faith. It's dead faith. Not good for anything faith. Useless faith. Incomplete faith. He went on to explain that even faith rooted in true things about God is not enough to save someone. So in the end, James's main answer to his main question is that a person can only rightly claim to have saving faith when his or her faith is marked by good works. So again, that was last week. So that was part Two, two sermons covering four main headings. That was the first of four headings last week. That brings us to the last three headings today. The three headings that we're going to consider this morning are the problem with that, with what James, what we just heard James say, the solution to that, and then the application of that. So, so let's, let's pray that in considering those last three headings, God would help us to understand and appreciate James better, especially his contribution to the Bible's larger picture of salvation. Let's pray that God would help us to get what that means for our lives as well, though. Not just understand it in our heads, but understand what that means for how we're to live it out in our lives. And all of those things, I want to, in the conclusion, all of those things in order that we would be able to truly celebrate Palm Sunday and then Easter. This is Palm Sunday, and this is the most Palm Sunday sermon you're ever going to hear that makes no reference to Palm Sunday. So let me pray. God, thank you that Palm Sunday and Holy Week and and, and Easter, Resurrection Sunday, all have meaning and significance because of the things we're covering today. Or maybe the better way to say that is to flip that around, to say that, through Holy Week and, and Easter, the things we'll hear this morning were accomplished. So thank you for that. Thank you that this the way we see the plays and read the story in the Gospels, we, we get the sort of horizontal and, and, and historical account of what Jesus did, and that's great and we need that, but it was to accomplish the things we're hearing in the sermon this morning. I pray, God, that you would... Let this church buckle up right now, that they would put on their thinking caps. It's going to cover more ground than we're used to covering and use terms we're not used to hearing. And but, but in all of that, not for the sake of just being thorough or technical, or but all of that, because in this is your greatest glory. In, in this is the true exaltation of Jesus Christ. In, in this is why we sing amazing grace. I pray, God, that the end result of all of this would be that you would get more praise and we would pursue more holiness through Jesus Christ our Lord. I pray all this in his name. Amen.
All right, so I ended last, after explaining James in this passage last Sunday, I ended it um, by saying it, if if this is all that we had, if if what James gives us in this short chunk of scriptures, all that we had about the relationship between the things we do and our claims to faith or or our understanding of salvation, if that's all we had, we'd have some clarity. It, it, it would be clear, and yet we'd have no small measure of concern. If you listened carefully to what Heather read just a little bit ago, it's not all that hard to understand, it, it, at least on one level. But man, if you listen carefully, you've got some questions. <laughs> You're wondering, okay, so... How many good deeds exactly do I need to do? If if I can't claim to have genuine faith apart from good works, what which ones? How many? How often? What happens when they're not necessarily there? If I want them but they don't seem to be coming, what do I do? Those are those are questions you ought to have. And so if all we had were was James, we'd have a measure of clarity but also a measure of ambiguity. Well, on top of that, so all this is the problem, on top of that, we know that we don't just have James. So if we just had James, a measure of clarity, but also some confusion. But we don't just have James. We have the rest of the Bible, of course, as well. And again, I said this last week. James says, you see a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. James says that. But Paul says, by grace you have been saved through faith, not a result of works. That's a problem. At least it seems to be one, right? Okay, so if we just have James, the problem is, okay, how many good works and things like that? But we don't have just James. We have James and Paul. And Paul says, it's not just, it's not by works, it's by faith. So we've got a, a bigger problem. So before I get you to the solution... I want to make you feel the problem even more. And there's two ways I'm going to do that. One is by sharing the gospel really quickly, and then by holding up what James and Paul say next to each other. So in order to really get our heads around the reason James felt compelled to write what he did, and then Paul felt the need to write what he did, and why it seems that there's tension between these two things, we got to back up just a little bit to understand the even larger question that they were trying to answer. Both James and Paul were answering an even bigger question than what I told you James was answering just a minute ago. So listen, listen to this, Grace. Pastor Mike uh, covered a lot of this in the exhortation. But God made all mankind, all men, all women, all people, all things, to glorify and enjoy him forever. That's our purpose. If you've been wandering around wondering, why am I here? What's my purpose in life? There you go. The problem, however, is that since the first man and woman ate the forbidden fruit, no one has ever done that. But one. We've all sinned, every one of us. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Consequently, we stand guilty before God. Worse still, this is no mere misdemeanor. This is cosmic treason, and the wages of this cosmic treason is eternal, physical, and spiritual death. The good news, however, is that God loved the world in such a way that he gave us his one and only son as a ransom for sin. Jesus, the very son of God, was conceived by the Holy Spirit, meaning he inherited no sinful nature and lived a perfect life, meaning he 
did not sin himself. And then he willingly offered himself as a sins for mankind. Most simply, all of that, Jesus died and then rose from the dead to save sinners. So here's the question. Here's the bigger question that James and Paul are trying to answer. How do I get access to that? If you've ever sat in my office, I've given you some version of this. Let's say I, I, I like you guys. You're all decent people in one sense. And I've got 10 million bucks for each of you. And you're like, wow, Pastor Dave, you're the man. That's just so cool. And I'm so thankful for that. And I said, okay, but it's on the moon. And you think, well, that's not such great news because we can't get there. So I can have the best news in the world. But if you don't have access to that, no, no good. So James and Paul are trying to say or answer the question, how do we get access to that? That's great news. Jesus died to save sins. How do I get him to save my sins? That's what they're trying to answer ultimately. So again, I said the main question for James is, what's the relationship between faith and works and salvation? But the larger question still is, how do I get access to the saving work of Jesus? By what means are we connected with the salvation that Jesus won on the cross that we celebrate this week? And then more specifically, where do faith and works come into play with this? So that's that's the, the bigger picture question. So now what is their answer? This is to make the problem even more acute. If you haven't felt the problem yet, I hope you feel it now. Listen again. I'm just going to read the bullets of James where he talks about the relationship between faith and works. How do we get connected to Jesus' saving work? Here we go. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? And James's implied answer is none. It's not, it's not good at all. If you have faith but not works, no good. Verse 17, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Dead faith. Verse 18, show me, you show me your faith. You, you claim to have faith. You show it to me, your faith, apart from your works. And the implication is you can't. And I'll show you my faith by, by my works. Verse 20. Faith apart from works is, do you see it? Useless. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works? Implied, yes. Verse 24, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Verse 26, faith apart from works is dead. That's pretty plain, pretty repeated, pretty blunt. For James, the means by which sinful man gains access to the saving work of Jesus, seems to be through some combination of faith and works together. Again, on the surface, this seems clear enough. The problem then comes when we lay that down next to the rest of the New Testament and especially Paul. Listen to this, Romans 3.28. We hold that no one, or I'm sorry, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. That doesn't sound like James to me. Philippians 3.9, having a righteousness of my own that comes not, (laughs) I keep adding a not, or not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, from good works, but that which comes through faith in Christ, Paul says. Galatians 2.21, if justification were through the law, obedience to the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And perhaps clearest of all, in Ephesians 2, we read, for by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So for Paul, 
The answer to the question of how we gain access to the saving work of Jesus seems clearly to be through faith alone, not works. And that, of course, appears to be in direct contradiction to what we've just read James say. So what are we to make of these differences? What are we to to make of this problem? What is the solution to it? And I get, I, in my head all week, I was doing scare quotes, scare quotes, and I thought, man, my fingers are going to get tired if I... So just know they're scare quotes every time around problem and solution. All right, so the solution. How do we reconcile James and Paul? I'm going to give you five ways. And each one of these is probably like four sermons all by themselves. But I'm going to give them to you all in one and just chew fast, all right? So here they are. I'm going to tell them, I'm just going to tell them to you now and then go through each of them. So number one is understanding Paul's full teaching on faith and works. I read some select passages. I'm going to read a few more. That actually makes the problem more serious, but not. Uh, second, understanding the distinct question. James and Paul were trying to answer within these larger questions a more distinct question to a more specific people. That'll help you to understand the solution. And then third and fourth, there's some terms that they use in common, but they're using differently. Faith and justification, really key. And then the last one, the fifth one, brings it all together, and we even have this, if you didn't get one of these, are there any more in the back, Bruce? You should get one of these. It's Well, anyway, you should have either this or the outline because you're going to sort of need that. That's the fifth one, uh, is the order of salvation. Okay. I'm going to make I'm going to make the water a little muddier. You ready? It's already pretty muddy. There seems to be this big problem. Uh but in the further muddying is actually clarification. So, the solution, five parts, part 1. First part of the solution uh is we just read a number of passages from Paul that that seem to suggest faith alone is the means by which we connect get connected with Jesus work. Okay, let me read you some more from Paul. Romans 1.5, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. Okay, that, that sounds a little different. It sounds a little more like James and a little less like Paul. So the, the good news that Paul and his companions are proclaiming is that there is an obedience of faith for the sake of of his name among the nations. Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything, but only faith working through love. Faith working. Okay? 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 through 3. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before God, before our God and Father, your work of faith and your labor, labor work of love and steadfast hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And probably, maybe, most importantly of all, I read Ephesians 2, 8, 9 to you just a little bit ago. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, not as not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one can boast. But listen to verse 10. That was 2, 8, 9. Listen to Ephesians 2, 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, do you know it? For good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the main point for us to see here in in this first part of the solution is that Paul clearly had an understanding of salvation that included good works as well as faith. 
Therefore, if it is right to assume Paul is not actually contradicting himself, especially in a passage like 2, 8 through 10, where he would be doing it right next to each other, if it's right for us to assume Paul's not contradicting himself, maybe, just maybe, he's not contradicting James either. Maybe there's more to the story than it seems on the surface. And so the question, of course, then, is how these seemingly contradictory statements made by James and Paul and Paul and Paul, how do they fit together? That was the first part of the solution, is just to see that Paul says more about salvation, more including even works, than the passages I read earlier. So one step in untangling all of this, the next step is to consider the main purpose for which these two men were writing. Okay, come with me here. Imagine imagine for a moment that you have a pipe burst in your house and your basement fills with water. Okay, hopefully that's not causing some of you to remember things that are bad. But but imagine that's happening, or that that happens. Now imagine you bring two contractors in to help you work out the solution to your problem. The first contractor says to you maybe something like this. The solution is to first turn off the main water line, then you need to cut away the section of pipe that failed, and finally you need to replace the failed section. That's how you fix your busted water uh, basement problem. Okay, now imagine the second the second contractor is saying, well, we'll need to remove the carpet, the trim, and the damaged sheetrock. Then we'll need to make sure that everything is dried and bleached to avoid mold problems. And then we'll get to work replacing everything that we had to demo. Okay, those, those seem like very contradictory answers, solutions to your problem. The, the reality is that they're simply offering solutions to do two different aspects of the same problem. You with me? Does that make sense? One one problem, they're, they're just describing two different aspects of the larger solution. That's what we have with James and Paul. The apparent contradiction between the two men will continue to fade when we realize, again, that they're offering. It's one big problem. How do I get reconciled? How do I get reconciled to God through Jesus? How do I gain access to what Jesus accomplished on the cross? They're offering two different solutions to the same problem. In the faith alone passages we read earlier from Paul, he was addressing, you got to get this grace, he was addressing people who wrongly, primarily addressing people who wrongly believed that access to the salvation won by Jesus came through obedience to the Jewish law apart from faith. For that reason, he emphasized grace and faith. So he's talking to people who want to just obey enough to be reconciled to God, that I gain access to Jesus' cross work by just obeying God enough. So he emphasized grace and faith. On the other hand, James was primarily dealing with people, and if you've been with us in James, you've seen this, who had swung the pendulum too far the other way. He was addressing primarily people who wrongly believed that access to the saving work of Jesus came through little more than belief or acceptance of certain facts about God, apart from actual holiness. And so for that reason, James emphasized the good works that always flow from genuine faith. These two men were offering solutions to two different aspects of the same problem. Therefore, they emphasize different aspects of the same answer. Are you with me? Two different solutions to one big problem. That's a big part of the answer. Here's the third. 
it gets these get increasingly important. The third part of the biblical solution to this apparent problem, James and Paul, concerns their use of the term faith. I mentioned this last week, but I need to say it again. They both use the same Greek word, but they use the word differently. You got to get that. It happens all the time in the Bible, and it happens all the time in our own lives. When I say to Jerry, for instance, it'll be a minute, I mean a relatively short amount of time. When Jerry hears that, she means a literal 60 seconds or less. And occasionally, it leads to some miscommunication and contradiction and conflict. I mean, like once every five or six years. <laughs> same, same word. We're, we're using the same word to mean two different things. It happens many times in the Bible, and it is happening here. So when Paul spoke of faith in the passages I read above, he was using the term in reference to the authentic variety. He meant real faith. He meant genuine faith. Faith for Paul in the sense of the passages I read earlier was a gift straight from God. He used the term to refer to the genuine fruit of God's regenerating work in a person. Of course, of course it didn't need to be tested since it was directly from God and God only gives pure faith. So now, of course, Paul had a category for people making false professions of faith, but that's not what he was talking about where he said it's by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. He was referring to true faith. And on the other hand, as we saw last week for James, he used it differently. This will become really important even in the next one. He used it to refer to any claim to believe in Jesus. So anybody can claim to have faith, but for James... He's not talking about the necessarily authentic kind. He's saying it's anybody making any claim to believe in Jesus. So claims of faith, therefore, for James, must always be tested against the effects they produced. You with me, Grace? So again then, when Paul claims that we gain access to the benefits of the cross of Christ through faith, through faith apart from works, it's critical to understand that he understands faith as God-given genuine trust in Jesus. But when James claims that salvation in Jesus comes by way of faith and works together, he has in mind a profession of faith in Jesus that needs to be verified. It needs to be tested to see if it's authentic, and the way that that happens is through our works. Big deal. That's a really big deal. Okay, the next one, fourth. Another definition Justification, justified. What do do these two men mean? Same word, used differently. For Paul, and we're going to come back to this in the fifth section, justification is a legal declaration. It is when God imputes Christ's righteousness to them and then on the basis of Christ's righteousness declares them not guilty. That's what justification is for Paul. It's a, it's a technical, legal term. It, it involves imputed righteousness and God declaring people not guilty based on Christ's righteousness, not ours. For James, however, justification is different. It is the declaration of the proof that your works provide. Rather than a legal declaration, it is the proof or vindication of a claim. So again, James speaks of faith in terms of a claim that needs to be tested. Justification is when your claim shows itself to be true by the good things that you do. That's why he gave the example of Abraham. 
Rahab in this text. I hope I hope it's easy for you to see what I mean in the text, and I hope you can see that this is a really big deal. James seems to say, here's where we are, that we that access to salvation in Jesus comes through a combination of faith and works. Paul seems to say that it comes through faith alone. The apparent contradiction is shown to be just that, apparent, when we consider that Paul contradicts himself in a certain sense in a number of passages, linking faith and works together, even though he said it's faith alone, that these two men were writing to two different groups of people dealing with two different problems under the banner of how do we gain access to Christ's work, and when we rightly define the terms as they're using them. Okay, so that's where we've been. Let's land this, this, this plane with something called the order of salvation. Again, it's, it's on your handout if you have it. If, if This is more colorful, and I didn't do this. Um, and if you want a fuller version of this, there's a link in the, in, the, in the manuscript online. But here we go. All this brings us to one final piece of the solution to the James-Paul problem. Most people... Test yourself for this. If I asked you to define salvation, right now in your head, try to define salvation. What does it mean to be saved? I've been at this pastor thing for quite a while. And most people, almost everyone in my, in my experience, defines it in, in a, a very simple way. It involves an initial trusting in Jesus, so this idea of a conversion experience, and then heaven when you die. So it's a, a two, two aspects to salvation, very few people have much in mind beyond that, at least functionally. Okay, but I want to help you see this very briefly. The Bible describes the saving work of God through Jesus Christ in much bigger terms. It does involve those two things, a conversion experience and then going to heaven when you die. It does involve those, but it actually has at least one way to describe it. it has 10 aspects not just two and that's where your handout the the handout that i gave you actually only has nine <laughs> um but the one i'm going to share with you right now that's on your sermon outline has 10 here they are uh, our salvation begins with our election that is god's choice of people to be saved and uh, it, uh, on, on the manuscript again i have lots of verses that you can look up on your own for each of these but your salvation begins with your election, God's choice of people to be saved. Second, at some point then, you will hear the gospel call. The message of salvation and Christ will come to you. God, God, God brings this to all of the elect. Romans 8.30, 1 Peter 2.9, 1 Corinthians 1.9, 1 Thessalonians 2.12. Again, pull up the manuscript later. Look these up. You'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. The third is called regeneration. So what does it mean to be saved? What, what did Christ accomplish for us? Election, hearing the gospel call, regeneration. That's when we're made spiritually alive. Not saved, but made spiritually alive. We're born spiritually dead in our sin. That's part of being an Adam. Regeneration is when we're made spiritually alive. Another way the Bible describes it is being born again. John 1.13, John 3, 3-8, 1 Peter 1.3, Acts 16.14. When that happens, all of a sudden our eyes are open to see what's been there all along. We couldn't see it. We didn't have spiritual eyes. We now have spiritual eyes. That's where true conversion comes from. It's when we respond to the gospel call that came to us in repentance 
and belief. That's called faith. Faith is repentance and belief. Fifth, justification. This is the way Paul used it, not the way James used it. Divine, this is a divine declaration of right legal standing. In our conversion and regeneration, we're in Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. God sees us as in Jesus, not as in our sin, and he declares us to be not guilty on that basis. He doesn't just wipe us clean, though. He doesn't just declare us not guilty. He adopts us into his own family. We become members of the family of God as part of our salvation. And then number seven, and this is the other really key one for this morning, part of our salvation is our sanctification. We're justified on the basis of Christ's righteousness, but God begins to work actual righteousness in us. This is the process by which God makes us holy. We're declared, Matt said this really well this morning earlier, but he says we're declared holy because we're in Christ, but we're called to pursue holiness. And this is part of our being saved is that God actually makes us holy slowly. Number eight is perseverance. Part of our salvation is that God keeps us hoping in Christ. He keeps us faithful to himself. Number nine, the one that's not on your colorful sheet, is death. By God's design, not only is it not death to die, I love that song, but but death is the is the point at which our souls are finally fully sanctified. In this life, we are made more holy in Christ increasingly, but it is not until we die that our souls are made finally completely holy, completely sanctified. But they're separated from our bodies. Our bodies go and into the ground, ash to ash, dust to dust, ash to ash. We await then the return of Christ where our bodies will be raised from the dead and our bodies will be finally fully sanctified, reunited with our souls. That's called glorification. That's a lot. Each one of these <laughs> it takes a lot to unpack. But, but this is what we mean by salvation. All 10 aspects If somebody is saved, this is what it means. So all 10 steps are a part of the salvation God works in everyone who trusts in him. The radical truth, get this, the radical truth is that if any of them are true of you, if any of them are true of you, all of them will be forever. That's awesome. If any of those things are true of you, all of them will be true of you forever. And that's the key. All right. All this isn't just meant to fill your head with stuff. This is the key to understanding the solution to James and Paul. When James says that salvation comes through faith and works, and Paul says that it comes through faith alone, they're referring to different aspects of the order of salvation. This is also why their, their different use of the same terms is so important. Okay, so here it is. Remember for Paul, that for Paul, The faith that stands alone is always the authentic kind. And justification is the legal declaration of God. So with those in mind, it's easier to understand what Paul was actually talking about. When he wrote the faith alone passages, he was referring to the basis. Get this. He was referring to the basis on which God justifies sinners. This is a lot. I'm using a lot of words. They're not familiar words. You with me, Grace? So when he says faith alone, he means faith alone as the basis for our justification. We contribute nothing to our justification. That's a really big deal. 
no part of our works contribute to our being declared righteous by God, for James or Paul. It is only and entirely on the basis of Jesus' righteousness. That's also why Paul is able to say in so many other passages that our works are inseparably tied to our salvation because our sanctification, it's a lot of words, I get it, our sanctification is as much a part of our salvation as our justification. Does that, does that make sense? So the reason Paul can talk so much about faith alone is because he means for our justification. But then without missing a beat or, or blushing at all, he can talk also about our good works that we were made for. That's our sanctification. Both are true. Both are a part of our salvation. I hope you can see how remarkable that truly is. I hope you can also see already where I'm going with how this relates to James. In the same way, when James says that salvation is faith and works together, he was referring to the fact that true conversion is always accompanied by true sanctification. This is why a right understanding of his use of the word justification is critical. He's not talking about the fifth step like Paul was. He's talking about the fact that unless you see sanctifying work in your life, you cannot claim to be legitimately converted. So, in short, when each man's audience is rightly identified, when their terms are rightly defined, and when we understand which aspects of the order of salvation they're referring to, there is not only no actual contradiction, there is instead glorious unity and a fuller explanation of the salvation that is ours in Christ than we would have with either man by themselves. I hope this is clear, and I hope it is as awe-inspiring for you as it ought to be. All right, so that's the solution. What do we do with that? I hope some of you are thinking, okay, well, that makes sense. I hope it does. I hope you might be thinking, what in the world are you talking about? But I hope all that makes sense, and I, ho- I hope you're thinking, that's great, but what does that actually look like in my daily life? What, what, does that, what does that actually mean to live in light of these things? How do I get the works that James keeps talking about, that he says my faith is dead if I don't have them? Now, that's a, a different sermon for a different day, but, but I do want to answer it really briefly. When we talk about truly good works, get, get this, all right? <laughs> If you if you zoned out, zone in. Get this. When we talk about truly good works, we're talking about the kind worked in us by God as a result of our salvation. Let me say that again. That is more important than you know, more important than I know. When we talk about good works, the kind James is referring to over and over, when we talk about truly good works, we're talking about the kind worked in us by God as a result of, of our salvation. That is, we're talking about the part of our salvation the Bible calls sanctification. It's the fruit of our justification and our adoption. This means that apart from election, the gospel call, regeneration, conversion, justification, and adoption happening first, there are no truly good works. Whatever does not proceed from faith, the Bible says, is sin. You with me? Okay, let me let me say it one more time in a little different way. This also means 
that if you've ever produced, if, if a, a truly good work has ever come out of you, one, just one, if one truly good work has ever come out of you, then you are a Christian and it, your ultimate salvation is secured because one good work, truly good work can only flow from true union with Christ through faith. You with me? One, a single one. None, none come apart from Christ. The only way they can come to us is through Christ. So since genuinely good works are always a part of our salvation, wherever there is genuine, a genuine good work, there is salvation. How does that work? Very briefly, another sermon for another day. Consider again Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this, it's not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one could boast. For, because we are his workmanship, Create God's workmanship, the Father's, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that his elect should walk in them. In saving us, God prepared good works for us to walk in. They're his good works worked out through us, but we must still choose to walk in them and work at them. He gives us the will and the strength to do so increasingly. That's what our sanctification is. But we must still fight to obey. This is a mystery. It's a beautiful mystery, but it is the way God's word presents our actually becoming holy in the Bible. The Holy Spirit changes our appetites. We begin to love, not just do, but love the things that God made us for. And in the meantime, in faith, we do them anyway, (laughs) trusting that they're right and they're good and that we're awaiting our appetites to fully and finally be fixed. Again, it's a beautiful, mysterious combination that we're likely never to fully understand, but it is the clear and awesome teaching of God's word. So in in Christ, when your hope is real, they'll start coming out of you in ways you can't always predict or explain. Or why why did I walk in sin for so long, this particular sin, and now all of a sudden I hate it? I can't explain that. Or or why do I still not hate it? Or why did when I when I was converted did like 30% of the sins that I was committing that I knew of, just my appetite died instantly, but a chunk remained. I, I don't understand what's going on underneath that, but I do understand that what's happening is God is working in me and demonstrating the authenticity of my faith. Okay, so here's my conclusion. On one hand, this might not seem like a Palm Sunday message. It's not a normal one for sure. But on the other hand, it doesn't get much more Palm Sunday than this. The entire reason Jesus rode into Jerusalem was to accomplish the things described in the sermon. It was because Jesus willingly rode to the cross that our salvation could be on the basis of his works, not ours, that we could work. It was because Jesus remained faithful until the end that sinners like us can be reconciled to God and know his pleasure forevermore. 